So find whatever area you're passionate about, find whatever topic it is. Chances are there's a subreddit for it. There's a discord for it. There's a Facebook group for it and just start talking. And I bet you would be surprised who pops up if you're willing to put yourself out there. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today we have on Chris Hutchins, host of the extremely fast-growing podcast, All the Hacks. But before we get into that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. This weekend was kind of one of those in-between-two trips. I think you know about the one coming up pretty soon, where we're going to Mexico. Just got back from Colorado and spent most of the long weekend knocking out kind of some house projects we've been putting off. Uh, Finally hung up some house numbers, kind of made this cool little wood thing and some float numbers, making it look uh, all modern and probably gentrified. Finished building this table, which Cody, you can probably see behind me. And also had a pizza party. Had like eight folks over, kind of a random mix of people. But it's, uh, you know, it's a good reason to get together. How about you, Cody? Is this with your uni? It is. It is uh, me making the pizzas, made the dough on... Saturday, I guess, and uh, which I know we had Brent, food truck CEO, on the podcast before, and so I was, I definitely always text him every time I make pizzas. Awesome. Well, if we ever have a five show meetup, which we definitely should coordinate, we might have to lean on your pizza expertise for the catering. <laughs> <laughs> Can do. For me, this past weekend, those who are listening might be able to tell I'm a little bit hoarse because I was in Nashville for one of my buddies, Zach, his bachelor party. So we rented out this nice big Airbnb. It was 15 of us. We were just hitting Broadway hard the whole time. So quickly lost my voice because for those who have been to Nashville, I know, Justin, you've been there a couple times. Yep, grew up three hours from there. (laughs) It's just there's live music on like every floor. Or if there's not live music, there's a DJ. It's like you go to three different bars and it feels like you've been to 12. It's honestly (laughs) insane there. There's just like so many people and noises and lights and entertainment. It was a ton of fun. My body could probably only handle two days of hitting the Broadway every day at Nashville, though. So it is good to be back. Hopefully my voice recovers for this week because we leave in just about a week now for Mexico, Justin, which is going to be a lot of fun. We'll have to check in live. And I don't even remember the last time we've done a live intro together. So that'll be a lot of fun. And, you know, hanging out with friends and enjoying the 90 something degree weather. I haven't checked lately, but it's a heck of a lot warmer than here. And on the business front, something that I've been excited about is the new Airbnb we just bought. I know I mentioned we had closed on it last week, but now we've actually started already ordering a bunch of stuff. And it's a lot different of an experience. I know one of the things that Dia Lu said when she was talking about short-term rentals, and I had to really get over my frugality hurdle, is that when you're buying furniture for an Airbnb, like maybe you don't get everything discounted and you know off of Facebook Marketplace. If you can get stuff, that's awesome. But it's it's been a weird experience for me, like saying, you know what, maybe we can get that nicer couch that costs a hundred or two hundred dollars more because you know that might attract people and we're gonna be making money with this thing. So it has been a mental hurdle, quite honestly, for me to kind of get over my frugality. But I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. I'm really excited and see how it plays out. But I think that's enough about us, Justin. Let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote-unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. 
If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. So on today's episode, we have Chris Hutchins, host of the All The Hacks podcast. And man, this guy has had the craziest journey from we're going to talk about when he gets laid off to all the entrepreneurial ventures and kind of the entrepreneurial itch has kind of been always happening behind the scenes. And something that we really get to dig into is just how Chris has become so good at identifying opportunities, figuring out where he should kind of lay into projects and where he should maybe back off. So for those of you who are entrepreneurs already, or maybe you're thinking about starting your own thing, you're definitely going to get a ton of value out of this episode, just kind of going behind the scenes into Chris's mindset and how he thinks about starting new projects and new ventures. Yeah, Chris definitely has a very impressive story. I mean, kind of going all over the place, like you mentioned, where he was laid off to like hosting these events. And now he's come all the way to where he's got this crazy podcast that's growing insanely fast, where he's had people like Manu Ginobili, Kerry Walsh Jennings, Tim Ferriss on the podcast already. And he was really smart about it, where, you know, he mentioned like, you know, you do all this work over the years, you meet people, you gain favors, and then you kind of ask for that IOU all at once to launch something like this and to really get it on the map. And there's a reason it's doing really well beyond just the names because there's some great content. And we think you're going to love this episode as well as Chris's podcast. You can find all the links to Chris's podcast and all the information from the show notes at thefyshow.com slash all the hacks. That's thefyshow.com slash all the hacks. Take it away, Chris. I always ask my parents this, I'm like, hey, could you guys like tell me the stories about lemonade stands or something? Because I don't really remember having this like childhood entrepreneurial story, but there are little blips in there more on the entrepreneurship side than the financial side until maybe high school where I would be like, oh, well, I want to make my own skate videos. So my friend and I would like get one of those shoulder mounted cameras. We would cut in ourselves to like pro skate videos and like we would show our friends. And there were all these things where we were like willing to try new stuff. I really wanted to go to concerts, but they were expensive. So I made like a magazine that it was real, but it didn't have any subscribers. And, you know, I'd go and be like, yeah, I got this like music magazine. Maybe I could come in as press. I was willing to try all kinds of stuff as a kid that, you know, would maybe give me access or cool ideas. And, you know, I was never willing to take no as an answer. But I think the big financial kind of turning point for me, there was there were two big ones. One was in high school and one was after college when I started working in the real world. But in high school, I went to a boarding school and, you know, I grew up in, you know, an upper middle class family. But when I went to boarding school, I didn't realize that there are kids out there that's parents, they just give them a credit card and they can spend whatever they want. Like that was not my childhood, right? Like my childhood was not go spend parents money freely. But I met a lot of people where that was the case. 
And I was like, well, I can't hang with all these people. Like they want to go out to dinners. They want to go out here. I need to find a way to make money and save money and optimize my life. And so one was I went and I told the school, I was like, hey, you should hire me to help make the mail system more efficient. So I got a job there when I wanted pizza. So every night at boarding school, you don't, you're like, the rules, right? Like you can't just go anywhere. So from 7.30 to 9.30, you're in your room studying. But from 9.30 to 10, it's like everyone on campus can do whatever they want. And so you could leave and you could go out and everyone would order Domino's pizza from 9.30 to 10 and go eat. But I was like, I can't afford to order Domino's every night. So I would order Domino's and sell six of the slices or order two pizzas and sell 10 of the slices, however many slices there were. So I could keep two for myself and the profit usually covered the cost of the pizza. Sometimes maybe a little extra profit, you know, maybe I wasn't hungry one night, I'd make a little money. But yeah, so there were all these little moments where I was like, I got to find ways to keep up. You know, I'm going to take the bus. I'm not going to take a taxi, that kind of stuff in high school. And then, you know, I don't know how far you want me to jump down memory lane. But I think the, the other fun one, I, you know, I made T-shirts for sports games and sold them at school, that kind of stuff. That's kind of like pre-professional life. What I tried to figure out, those are my like fun stories. So you have all these moments where you're dabbling in entrepreneurship and these kind of self-driven things where you're trying to create things on your own. But then you mentioned going to college, having like the professional grown-up career. How did those two things kind of meld? Like, did you ever have a moment where you thought, I don't really want to go to college and try to work for someone else? Like, I'm, I'm good at dabbling. It never crossed my mind that I wouldn't go to college. And, and not because I think everyone needs to go to college, but it was just like, that was the path. Everyone I knew went on that path. I never really thought about not going on that path. And so it was always the plan. So I guess I, it never really crossed my mind. But the get a job after college was an interesting one because I had taken some entrepreneurship classes. I actually graduated. I got enough credits done to graduate in three years. But at the end of three years, I was like, I didn't have a job line. Everyone was like, do you have a job? I was like, no. And I was like, I guess I should just do a fourth year. And so I stayed in college all four years. But when I graduated... I learned quickly at the end of my junior year, oh, you got to get a job before you graduate. I was like, okay, so senior year, I'm going to make sure I do that. But I didn't realize how early you have to get a job. Like there are jobs that, and sellouts the wrong word, but like positions fill up before Christmas if you're on like a standard cycle graduating in May. So when I went home for Thanksgiving, all my friends from high school and middle school were like, yeah, we already got our jobs lined up. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like we're so far away from graduation. And so funny enough, I didn't even have time to think about what I wanted to do because I felt like I had missed everything. So I went back to school and I went to the dean of the College of Business. I was like, hey, I just talked to a bunch of my friends and they said that management consulting, investment banking are the best jobs that you can get out of college. Help me get one of these jobs. Like, I didn't even take the time to figure out, do I want to be a management consultant? Do I want to work in investment banking? I just felt like if I didn't move quick, I was toast. And I managed to get an interview at one management consulting firm, one investment banking firm, and one of the jobs started right after graduation. One of them started 10 months after graduation. I just took both of them and thought I got 10 months to figure out if the second one, <laughs> if I want to do the second one instead. And that was what I ended up doing. But I never thought of something being an alternative. I just kind of convinced myself that was the path because I felt like I was just so far behind everyone else. And as a lifelong dabbler, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you were dabbling as early as you can remember, just doing all sorts of little things to earn extra money on the side. Were you just fully focused on a career or were you still kind of dabbling on the sidelines? It's a great question. So I was like a huge computer nerd my whole life. Like I can't remember how my parents both worked at home, which meant, you know, 
back in the day, or at least when I grew up in late 80s, early 90s, like most, not everyone had a computer, but most people had a computer like at work if their parents went to work. And so because my parents worked at home, we had computers at home. And when they upgraded their computer, it was like they upgraded their work computer. There was still, you know, they didn't leave it at the office. I got to use it. So I had a bunch of fun, like personal internet nerd hobbies that kind of maybe took over a little bit from the kind of hobbies of side hustles, if you will. But after graduation, you don't really get a choice when you're working in investment banking or management consulting. Like you don't have the time for anything else in college. I was able to be in a business fraternity, be in a social fraternity, work on all kinds of projects, work in student government, run for student body president. I had all this extra time when I was in investment banking. And honestly, the point at time at which I decided I didn't want to do it, I didn't see my wife awake for five days. So it was one of those things where it's like, ah, this is not for me. Like, I don't even have time to think, see I, my then girlfriend, now wife, but like, I couldn't do anything. So for me, it wasn't the right fit. It didn't end up working well. And so I didn't stick around long enough. So no, I didn't really have time for side projects. In fact, the moment I realized that there was a potential side project was when I first learned about startups and internet companies. And at that point, everything changed. And I was like, oh, that's the world I want to work in. This, this, I thought that this was a career. This is done. That's the future. I need to do that. And it's one thing to kind of get excited about something. This is something that sounds like a great option. It's another thing to actually pull the trigger, walk away from a career that's probably a good career, probably a fairly stable career, even if it is a lot of hours to, you know, actually making that leap. So what was it that gave you the confidence or the belief that like, not only is it an option, but it's an option that's going to work and it's going to be fine. Like I can take this leap. Yeah. So I got laid off. So <laughs> I didn't really need courage. Courage I had was I decided to tell my company, I want to move to San Francisco. And so, you know, I decided my wife and I were like, well, we don't really love New York right now at this point in our life. So it was kind of, let's move to San Francisco. But yeah, no, I, a month after I moved there, they said, we don't need you anymore. To this day, I'm like, did I get fired? Did I get laid off? Like there were other people that got let go, but it wasn't a mass thing. And at the end of the day, I'll never really know the answer to that question, but I lost my job it was the wake of 2008. And so I didn't have a choice. So I was kind of forced into entrepreneurship, internet company world, like freelance work, consulting. I was forced into all that because I didn't have a job. And at the end of 2008, nobody was hiring. So unfortunately, I don't have this great story of, you know, how I built up the courage to do this thing that changed my life. It was more like some person who I never actually had met before was like, you don't work here anymore. And so oh. they did it for me. <laughs> Well, you did build up the courage, and let's use the term laid off, and talk to us about laid off camp and how you got the courage to start something like that pretty shortly after losing that corporate job. Yeah. So when I lost my job, I was like, well, I don't know what to do. It was November, I think, or yeah, I think it was November. And I was like, well, no one's, we have a financial crisis. Thanksgiving and the holidays, Christmas, you know, everything's right around the corner. No one's going to hire anyone right now. So what do I do? So I had no clue what to do with my life. Except that I had gone to this weird event called Bar Camp, which is like an unconference. And I was like, oh, that was kind of fun. Like, you know, people were creating the content at the beginning of the day and it wasn't very structured. You didn't need, you know, tons of dollars to put it on. And I was like, well, I got laid off. What if we could do something similar around this? And I don't remember the exact moment when the light bulb moment came on, but I decided I'm going to start this thing. I'm going to call it Laid Off Camp. I'm going to totally open source it. I'm not going to try to make a profit from it. It's no one's going to really make money. And a handful of other people who had been laid off were like, this is really cool. I don't even know how I started spreading the word because it was 
you know, I didn't really have any following on the internet or anything like that. And next thing you know, if you fast forward a little bit, we put on a huge event in San Francisco where, you know, everyone from local news to national media came. And then there ended up being 20 of them around the country that other people completely on their own hosted. And all I did was provide, you know, here's the email I sent to sponsors. Here's the website. Here's the logo. Go for it. Do whatever you want. Make it your own. And it kind of became this movement that in a very satisfying way, completely disappeared as, you know, the financial crisis and the wake after, you know, kind of dissipated and people got jobs. They didn't need laid off camp anymore. And you know what? Like, I'm okay with that. It was great at the time. I got to meet so many interesting people. I found a few consulting projects. I got to build my brand. I learned how to talk to the media. So it was like the best experience ever. I didn't make any money at all. I got free pizza at the event. But uh, <laughs> other than that, you know, I guess maybe that's the recurring theme is like, uh, whatever I do, it's always to get some free pizza. And out of curiosity, like, what are the subject matter of this, you know, laid off camp? Obviously, like everyone who's there has probably been laid off. But are, are y'all trying to like figure out ways to not be laid off? Like looking for alternative jobs? Just like, hey, how are you killing the time? Like, what's the what's the kind of core um, subject matter of an event like this? Yeah. So what was interesting was there were a lot of people that had some skills, but not the other skills. So we had people who'd been in the workforce for 30 years who were leading a class or, or a session about how to interview and what to think about and how to prepare and all that stuff. But then we had young people who'd maybe had one job or, you know, had just left college and haven't gotten a job yet. They were like, hey, here's how to use social media. Here's how to use LinkedIn. Here's how to find information online about company salaries and that kind of stuff. But you also had people who had been freelancing for you know a few years and said, hey, this is how you can take the skills that you've built in your career and maybe make some money now without full-time employment. There were people that were like, you could start a company. And so people were talking about what it takes to start a company, how to find a co-founder, how to you know formulate an idea and how to get your company ready, how to raise money. And so it was really, I kind of say it was for anyone who wasn't traditionally employed, whether that meant completely unemployed, freelancing, an entrepreneur. And so you had people from all different areas telling those stories and, and learning from each other. And there were some really cool stories that came out of it. People wrote books, people started companies, people went on to amazing new careers. I wish I, I could probably take the email list of everyone that came and do a follow-up survey 10 years later, 14 years later, I guess, and find out what came of it. But I, I know a handful of anecdotes of people that went on to do really awesome stuff. And by no means do I think it was because of that event, but it just goes to show that the stigma of being laid off is not something that should live with you forever, right? It's a point in time that might actually position you better for the future because you have time to reflect on what you really want. So I know you mentioned that laid off camp, you weren't going for profit. You were just kind of building this open source thing. You were letting people basically take like a free license, like McDonald's just giving you the keys and setting up shop. It's essentially what you're doing for all these people around the country who were setting up their own laid off camps. What was the first side hustle or biz side business or just business in general where you started to actually make some money on your own? Like something where, you know, you weren't taking the corporate job, but you started to actually make real money from something that you had built with your own hands. That might've been a while to be honest. <laughs> so I got a few projects out of laid off camp where someone hired me to go help them put together the financials and the information they needed to raise a later stage round of financing. Cause I'd been in investment banking. Someone came out and said, hey, you put on such a great event. Our startup wants to put on events for our community. Can you help put on events around the West Coast for our startup? It's like, cool. So I started you know, doing some freelance work, 
but you know, none of those things I owned, right? The, the downside to freelance work, you know, the upside is flexibility. Now even real jobs have flexibility, at least with where you live and hours you work, but the downside is you don't really own anything. So it wasn't a long time before I kind of really had that ownership. If I'm being real, like I didn't have a side hustle that was making a lot of money, but I did have some things that I was doing on my own to make money, but I didn't think of them as long-term. I thought of them more as short-term and Ultimately, if you kind of fast forward a few years, my goal was not to start something and own it. It was to go work at one of the hottest companies in Silicon Valley and and go work in tech and work in startup land and see where that took me. And it wasn't for, you know, many years after that before I actually started a company myself. And during this time where it's between like you're being laid off, picking up some kind of freelance jobs, some small jobs and really hitting your stride like what do finances look like like are you able to save money are you squeaking by like what is kind of the actual financial part of your life looking like so my wife and i at the time were living in a studio that probably cost way more than anywhere else in the country because san francisco was crazy at the time uh but we'd saved a little money like you know let's call it maybe $15,000 each or something, you know, it was was not enough to retire by any stretch of the means. And we actually did something that maybe you could call completely irresponsible, but I had all these freelance jobs. And as they all were kind of serendipitously wrapping up at the same time, my wife didn't love her job. And keep in mind the whole time she didn't lose her job. So we had one income in the, in the house, but she didn't love her job. So she went in and told her boss, Hey, this isn't for me. And he said, what are you going to do instead? And she's like, well, actually, my, I guess at the time, boyfriend and I, we're going to go travel for a little bit. And he's like, great, you can keep your job, come back whenever you're done. And she's like, okay, but it might be a while. And he's like, fine. So we started thinking, where could we go? And we ended up traveling for eight months. And we did a backpacking trip all around Africa, the Middle East and Southeast Asia. And we spent probably half of our savings And so when we came back, we're like, okay, now we really need a job. So at this point in time, I think I, you know, to be able to take a trip like that in your, I guess, mid twenties, like you have to have been fortunate enough to save. And and that's what I did. You know, I was pretty good saver, but you know, I definitely didn't have the attitude at the time of save everything. Don't spend any money. But when I came back, I knew it was time to kind of turn up the dials and bring the income in and start saving and building up uh, a little bit more savings. And, and I think over the course of an, maybe another year or two, I slowly started to understand what in my mind drove me to be such a different financial person than so many others. So I think I want to dive into the first project here where, and you know, this seems like a theme where you're building something up and maybe there's a bunch of failures in the background that don't get all the spotlight and they don't get acquired by a big company. But can you talk about milk for a little bit and kind of how that all unfolded? We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. 
Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. Yep. So when I got my first job in Silicon Valley, I was at a company called Simple Geo. And about a year in, that company didn't work. And I had gotten introduced to a guy named Kevin Rose, who started a company called Dig, which was pretty popular back in the day, most similar to Reddit, but before Reddit was really a big thing. And he was like, hey, I got this idea. I want you to come join the founding team and we're going to take it off the ground and we're going to build projects. Like we didn't know what they all would be. We had one idea at the start. It was kind of like, you know, Yelp, except instead of rating a restaurant, you'd rate the food at the restaurant or instead of rating the art gallery, you'd rate the different exhibits. And we started building it. And I would say we had some traction, but one of the downsides of having someone with a huge falling on the internet is that you'll get traction with even a bad idea. <laughs> you know, I still wish the app existed, so I can't say it was a terrible idea, but I'm not sure it was a great idea for a company. And so we got to this point where we're like, well, what do we build next? And we'd been introduced to the team at Google Plus and they were kind of like, hey, instead of figuring out what you do next, what if you came and worked on Google Plus? And we kind of thought about our alternatives and none of the ideas we wanted to work on were so compelling that we would say no. So we said yes. And we ended up working at Google and I'll call it an aqua hire, which is like, we're going to give you money to come work here, but it's not like they're going to buy your company for $50 million or $100 million or in this day and age, like a billion dollars. Like none of those were the outcomes, but I got a job at Google and Google was a great paying company that I had applied to multiple times and been rejected immediately. Like so immediately that I would reply <laughs> and within five minutes I would get an email that was like, we've reviewed your resume and you're no longer, you're not a fit for this position. And I would actually write back and be like, how is it possible? It took five minutes. And she's like, resume came in. I looked at it. You're not a fit. I just wanted to get back to you as quickly as I could. I was like, dang, I thought for sure it was a robot. I got a job <laughs> at this company. And by the way, working in tech and doing all these side projects and finally being able to like tell your parents, oh, I got a job at Google. It's like, oh, I know what you do now. Like that makes sense. I've heard of that. So in many ways, it was like there are a lot of great things about working at Google. But as an entrepreneur, I think it was really tough and it just wasn't a good fit. And so about three months in, I was already trying to find a new home where to go at Google because I didn't love working on the product I was working on. And this really started to cement an idea in my head, which maybe it, from the outside seems crazy. But the story in my mind was, gosh, I have now done at that point, let's call it five jobs. And if you include freelance work and stuff, six or seven, and none of them worked out. Now, some of them didn't work out because I got fired. Some of them worked out because I didn't love it. Some of them worked out because it just ended, but none of them worked out. And it gave me this mindset of, wow, I have not found a thing that I love doing that makes me money that I can keep doing. Like those three things, I either didn't love it, I couldn't keep doing it because it ended, or it didn't make me money. And I was like, man, if I don't have a thing I love that will make me money, I need to save as much as possible because the only way I'm going to make money is doing something I don't love. And that sucks. I don't want to do that forever. So that really pushed me into this like ultra high saving kind of crazy optimizing personality that had kind of always been there lying in the background in terms of wanting to take crazy vacations and not spend money. Like I'd always been deep in the points game and in lots of different life hacks. I never really understood why. 
And I think that this whole thing existed before, but I didn't recognize it. And I was finally starting to recognize why I had such a crazy scarcity mindset with money. And it was that I just had never found a thing that I could do that made money that I enjoyed. And so that kind of put me deeper down the the financial independence path than I had ever been before. We've kind of documented this clear history of you. you having all these different projects most of the time in a little bit more of like a tech oriented way. Now you've started to bring personal finance and more of like financial education into your personal life. When do these two things kind of collide where you start to think, okay, I'm really understanding the focus on personal finance. I could actually do something with this with my kind of entrepreneurship mindset. I'm sure many people listening have gone to like Reddit, our personal finance and stuff. Well, there was a version of that at Google internally. And I went so deep down that rabbit hole. I was like, oh man, wow, I found my people. I'm like, this is, so I went deep down that and I was like, this is more and more a part of my personality. People that knew me started to hear me talking more about investing and savings and all these things beyond just the points and miles stuff. And it's still just a hobby, right? I ended up being fortunate and I was able to transfer internally at Google over to Google Ventures, which is one of Google's venture capital teams. And so for a few years, I started you know, investing in startups and different you know, industries. And I certainly had a strong opinion about what was going on in the finance space. But when it came to actually building companies in finance, it's very different than being passionate about personal finance and saving and investing. And so it still hadn't clicked, but a funny thing happened, which is I was like two years into this job and I was like, oh my gosh, I just had a job for two years. I'd never had a job for two years. This is the first time I ever had the same type of employment for more than 12 months in my entire life. And for about six months more, I was like, maybe I don't have to be so crazy about money because I found a job I love. And then like six months later, I was like, I just don't know if this is for me. And I was like, no. (laughs) And I started thinking about why and For me, I think I felt like venture capital was a thing that I didn't have the experience to do professionally. And maybe that's an imposter syndrome thing. I've since learned that it probably is. But I was like, gosh, I've never started a company that worked. Maybe I should go do that. And but I didn't have an idea. And you you should never, if you're listening, start a company if you don't have an idea. You know, find the idea that you're passionate about and then consider starting the company. But don't do it in the opposite order. But I've been thinking and thinking. I've been talking to friends and I realized that as all my friends were getting a little bit older, they're getting married, maybe having kids, maybe buying a home. None of them had any clue what to do. And they would talk to me about their money and I would try to help them out. And I kind of thought, wow, I wonder if I could productize that thing that I do for my friends. And that took me down a rabbit hole of starting a company that I ultimately left Google to go run, which was called Grove. And the whole idea was that we could take the process of financial planning, something that usually costs two or $3,000 to go through with a certified financial planner or a financial advisor. And we could use software to make it much more efficient. And that was the goal. And so me and my co-founder, Chris, also Chris, started this company. And for the next three years, we were on a mission to try and make financial planning more accessible and more affordable to as many people as we could. And you know, it was a ton of fun along the way. All right. So we have a lot of places we can go. I think the reason why we've been kind of hitting on all these different parts of your story is to just like building up a full character, you know, not just kind of diving into what's working, what's going on now. Justin and I love kind of just piecing apart what makes entrepreneurs successful, how to validate ideas. And I think that's honestly one of the skills that 
from looking at your background and listening to you and your podcast and just reading about you, it seems like that's a skill that you slowly start to get really, really good at is identifying opportunities, kind of doing the market research up front. So obviously not everyone's going to build up a company that they're going to then sell to a financial firm or they might not have this seven, six figure side hustle. But for someone who's thinking about starting something new and they don't want to pour a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of whatever resource into that, what are some of the strategies you're using along this journey? And again, you probably have gotten so much better at this from those initial, the 2009, the laid off camp. What are some of those strategies that you're using to identify, is this opportunity worth pouring resources into? Yeah. So the biggest barometer for me, and this is both personal and as an investor, is just like, how much does it keep you up at night after a week? Where like anything you're excited about can keep you up at night for a few days, but it's like a week later. And sometimes I even try to take a break. It's like, if I'm so excited for seven days straight, I'm like, you know what? Five days in, I'm going to stop. And I'm just going to try to just completely forget about it. And if two days, three days later, I'm like, I can't forget about it. This is the thing. Like that is the biggest barometer out there is how excited are you? I think a second barometer would be like, how capable are you of doing this thing? Like if you're really, really excited to do this thing, but it involves really technical software. Like if you have a really crazy idea for something in the crypto space and you've never written a line of code in your entire life, like I'm not saying you can't do it, but you might want to find someone that knows how to do that other really important piece because, you know, there's not a single startup pitch I dislike more than a person that's like, I have a really good idea. I just need to hire a team to build it. And I'm like, yeah, I just don't love that. Like if you find a co-founder and you a team together can build it where everyone's got a lot of skin in the game, great. But if you've just got an idea and you want to go hire some people off of, you know, Upwork or Fiverr or something to go build your idea, like that never feels like the right thing. So the biggest, most important thing is trying to find the thing that you were just so passionate about. No one can convince you otherwise. I would always tell people, I was like, you should not start this company. I don't think that this is going to be successful, but not because in many cases, I didn't think that, to be honest. But (laughs) Sometimes I would tell people, I was like, you shouldn't do this just to push them a little bit, because if they still say, if I can convince you not to start your company, then you weren't going to start. You shouldn't have started in the first place. If you find a friend that doesn't love your idea, and this is really tough. Here's a really important thing. Almost everyone, you know, you're going to say, I have this idea. They're like, that's so cool. That's so awesome. And I remember a couple of cases of mutual friend of four or five people came in and pitched this idea. And everyone was like, well, I told him it was great. I was like, why didn't you tell him it sucked? You just told me it sucked. They're like, well, I didn't want to like hurt his feelings, all stuff. Find the first person that tells you it's a bad idea and really spend your time with them. The average person that's a friend of yours is probably going to want to boost your ego. Go see that person after you've talked to the person that told you it's a horrible <laughs> idea so you can feel a little bit better. But it's really important to spend time with people that are going to show you the reasons this won't work because that's the information you need. If you hear that and you want to run away, great, run away. Maybe it wasn't for you. Maybe it wasn't the right idea. Maybe it wasn't the right time. But when 10 people tell you how horrible this idea is and you tell them, I don't care, I'm still doing it, like that is a good sign that this is a thing worth spending your time on. But I mentioned not everyone's going to go start a company. One, one fun story I'll share. When I first got back from traveling, I said, I'm going to go work at a company. It's going to be a really hot internet startup because I just need to start working because I needed money. And I wanted to do it somewhere where I'd learn a lot and it'd be a name people recognized. And it turns out the company went out of business. But the story is important, which was I didn't know anyone at this company and I didn't even know what I would do at the company because my skills weren't like I was a designer or an engineer. So 
I just put together a presentation about everything I could figure out about the industry, the company, the opportunities in this space. And I found someone that was willing to forward the email to the founders that I said, hey, I really want to work at your company. Can I present to you why I think this is a hot space and what I could do? And I gave that presentation and they were like, yes, come work for us. And then someone actually used that lesson that I think because I shared it on a podcast once and then used it on me at Grove and pitched me and we ended up hiring that person. And so I would just say like, when you're really passionate about something, whether it's a company or your own idea, don't be afraid to show that passion to people because as a person who's hired lots of people, it is rare to find someone that is so excited about what you're doing that they will go above and beyond. And it is a kind of person that I would take a chance on, even if it doesn't work out, which in one case it didn't, I would take a chance on that kind of person over and over again. I love the kind of tactics you're talking about to figure out what you're really passionate about and to test that passion and to make sure it's not just a flash in the pan. I also love the like seeking out kind of some more of that hard love, some of that negative feedback, because that's when you, when you really learn. But you know, one thing you mentioned was coming into it with a team. Like if you don't have all the strengths, finding that team to surround you. You know, you mentioned you were in San Francisco and I have to imagine that that was a little bit of an easier space to find a team. Like there were probably a lot of people who had those different kind of skills that could help build a startup in that area. For people who are maybe not in a geographic location, it's real dense with that sort of thing where they're just going to like be able to find meetups and stuff where they might find some people like that. Do you have any recommendations for how someone can build that team without just, like you said, just going to something like Fiverr? Yeah, I feel like I'm remiss to not know the name of these companies, but I guarantee if you search looking for a co-founder, there's probably a handful of sites to network and meet people. But there's also programs where people who are really excited are kind of jumping into things. So On Deck is a great example, which is kind of like a cohort-based program to help prep people to kind of be on deck for various opportunities. That's an interesting one. I went to all these Startup Weekend events, which is like a three-day program that is where I met a handful of people that really threw me into this community. And I went to one in Boston and I went to one in New York. And at the same time, I, you know, I, I drove to them. So they've probably done 7,000 events in over 100 countries. So look for events like that. Look for the tech meetup that's closest to you. Go to it. Find events. I know in San Francisco, there might be an event every two or three hours. Uh, <laughs> but in any city, there's probably an event at least every two or three days or two or three months, even a small town. So that's one. And then now we live in a world where this doesn't have to happen in person. So find whatever area you're passionate about, find whatever topic it is. Chances are there's a subreddit for it. There's a discord for it. There's a Facebook group for it and just start talking. And I bet you would be surprised who pops up if you're willing to put yourself out there. We willing to say, hey, I have a really exciting idea. I'm looking for a person with XYZ skills. Is anyone else excited? Put that in a community where the idea is. You don't necessarily need to go look for an engineering co-founder in an engineering room. But if you have a really, if you're really passionate about a specific idea, let's say it's revolving around cleaning the ocean, right? I guarantee there's some community where people who are also really excited about cleaning the ocean are. So instead of going to like the engineering group and asking who's excited about cleaning the ocean, go to the cleaning the ocean group and ask who's an engineer. I think if you're ever going to find the right person to start a company with, they have to believe in the mission and the vision of the company way more than they need to be the best person with the perfect skill set. 
because no one's perfect, but the idea and being excited about it is what's going to get you through what is inevitably going to be a lot, a lot of long, hard days. That is fantastic advice. So speaking of exciting ideas and using your own filtering criteria, Chris, let's talk about starting all the hacks. What made you for a week straight, you can't get this idea out of your head. I need this podcast. This podcast has to happen. I'm so excited about this idea that I just have to start it. What did your life look like? How did that idea even come into existence? I've always been the person that everyone called for all these things. And it's funny, when I started Grove, I thought, this is like me. Investors of mine were like, I want to invest in this because this is like you, the brand. And then I would tell them this idea many years later about all the hacks. And like, no, no, this is actually you, the brand. Like, we <laughs> thought it was this other thing because you love personal finance. Now we realize like, the part of personal finance you love are finding every little optimization. And so it was always something that I talked about. It was like, I knew one day I'd do something and I experimented once with like a text message subscription thing where if I saw some cool deal or like a promo code for a $20 Uber credit, I would like send it to 10 friends. And so there've been these like little tiny things. If you, if you go back on my website, you'll see I wrote a blog post about getting a discount on a Peloton. Like I tried a few different mediums for what it would be and it never clicked. And meanwhile, the entire time I was running Grove, I found that podcasts were a channel where I could go and talk about my story and the company we were building. And it just felt so natural. And I probably went on, I don't know, 20, 30 podcasts in the time running Grove. It was like, okay, here's a medium I love. Here's this topic. How does it all fit together? I wasn't quite sure. And then... In the middle of COVID, we all had our projects, whether it was, you know, your sourdough starter or whatever. And for me, I was like, well, I'm going to buy a microphone and I'm going to start a podcast. And funny enough, it wasn't supposed to be about money or hacks. It was supposed to be about parenting because we had a baby on the way and I went so deep on what are the best things to buy for our kid? Like, what is the best? And where, where how do you get the best deal on it? For a crib, for a sound machine, for a baby camera, all the stuff. So I went so, so, so deep on all this. And I was like, I'm gonna start a parenting podcast. And I was like, who's gonna be my co-host? What are the topics? Who are all the guests? I have all this documented somewhere. And then we had our daughter. And like a month later, after all the chaos that is comes with bringing a child into your family, I was like, do I wanna start a parenting podcast still? I was like, no. Like I was really excited about optimizing all those purchases and learning all the details of what you need. And I love being a parent. But I realized that there was one element of it that I was so excited about. And so thankfully, I didn't start that podcast. But I was on a friend of mine's podcast and he asked me, he said, hey, why don't you tell everyone about this podcast? And I was like, well, I haven't started this podcast. I, you know, I told you I want to one day, but I haven't done it. And he's like, OK, well, I'm going to ask you, hey, why don't you tell me about this podcast? Now you're going to go and record the answer and send it to me. And he's like, you already have you told me you already bought a microphone, so you should be good. And I was like, okay. I was like, yeah, I guess I'm going to start a podcast. Like <laughs> he kind of threw me into it, but I appreciate it. And so I came home and I was like, what's the name of this podcast? What's it going to, what's the topics? And I had like three days to record a trailer, come up with an idea of what it would be. But you know, the whole time it was always going to be the same podcast. It was always going to be about ways to upgrade your life, your travel, you know, optimizing everything, whether it's points or your career or how to negotiate or you know, your relationship or house hacking, it was always going to be all these topics. And, and the common thread was going to be, let's learn how to optimize every aspect of your life, but let's do it while you're spending less and saving more. Because 
you know, I've talked to people on the show, talked to Manu Ginobili, a multiple-time all-star NBA player, played in the league for so many years. And he's like, yeah, so when I'm getting ready for a season, I have my health nutritionist and trainer live in my house for like three months. And I was like, okay, well, that sounds really expensive. <laughs> like that, you know, so the idea isn't to learn all the hacks that cost thousands of dollars to implement in your life. It's learn all the hacks that you can use without having to spend a fortune. And so part of that is credit card points. Part of that is learning how to optimize everything. But the goal was, I just love learning this stuff. So, and, and I usually don't learn it by myself, right? I don't just make up these ideas. I go and talk to people. So why don't I just go record all those conversations? And now I even have a platform to go get more interesting people to have conversations with. And then I could just share that with everyone. And so it was supposed to be a, let's try five or six episodes and see where it goes kind of thing. And it just took off beyond my wildest dreams and we're about 40 episodes in i would be surprised if anyone couldn't find a topic that we've done that they're interested in and we're starting to do a few more solo episodes and i keep saying we it's literally just me and a microphone (laughs) although although my wife joined me to co-host one episode and yeah so every week i'm just trying to find another topic that people can dive into and learn how to optimize in their life hopefully people love it you mentioned, you said the phrase like some interesting people. And, you know, if you look at just for only having 40 episodes, some of the really awesome guests like you've had, you mentioned Manu Ginobili, Kerry Walsh Jennings, Tim Ferriss, the points guy. How do you go from having this general idea of like maybe wanting to have a podcast or just have a microphone to getting guests like that so quickly? Some of them I just reached out to and some of them I said, hey, I'm going to do this thing. Can you come on? And I talked about how big it was going to be. I talked about how exciting it was. And some of it, there were a handful of people that I would say I had relationships with, whether it was through starting a company or being an investor. And some of them, I just cold emailed. I cold emailed Morgan Housel, who wrote The Psychology of Money, which is one of my favorite books on the topic. And I was like, hey, I'm starting this podcast. It's going to be huge. Can I interview you? And he was like, sure. So sometimes (laughs) you just have to stick yourself out there and see what happens. Sometimes you have to spend time getting to know people. Scott Kyes from Scott's Cheap Flights. Like, I didn't know him. Asked someone that mentioned they knew him. And he was like, yeah, I'd love to come on. And, you know, I will say sometimes it's around a book launch and people are more willing to be out there. But a lot of times it's just kind of putting yourself out there and seeing what happens. And I'll say, though, an interesting thing I've learned is that some of the episodes I've done that did the best. The first episode I did, Travel Hacks, with a guy named Lee Rowan. And if you don't know Lee Rowan, it's... Probably because he doesn't have a big brand on the internet. He doesn't have millions of followers. He used to be the COO at the Points Guy. And now he runs a company called Savanti Travel, which is a very high-end personal travel service, like a travel agent. But think for people who are traveling extensively, you know, nice vacations. But he spent the better half of a decade optimizing every aspect of every type of travel for consumers at the points guy and for his clients at Savanti. So we did an episode. It's episode one. It's just all the hacks.com slash one all about like travel hacks for your next trip. And that episode has done better than almost any episode. You know, you mentioned Tim Ferriss, like Tim listened to that episode, put it in his five bullet Friday, thought it was fantastic. I always joke with Lee because I was fortunate to do a podcast with Tim and he's like mentioned, he's like, you know, there's some guests like Hugh Jackman And Lee, that just bring their A game. And Lee, to this day, is like, all right, if I'm on the same stage as Hugh Jackman, it was a fantastic episode. And people loved it. And nobody has ever heard of Lee Rowan. And now, hopefully, they have. And hopefully, his business is just booming because of it. But I will say, 
if you're out there thinking about starting a podcast, it's equally as important to have names that will help validate the show to other people as it is to just have great content. I'd argue it's better to have great content, right? You know, it's better to have an amazing episode with someone no one's ever heard of than an average mediocre episode with someone that everyone knows. And so both are helpful because someone's going to make a decision to come on your show. They might say, oh, who else has been on there? But if the show's also rising in the ranks because you built the be- made the best content, like that also helps a lot too. Just going to say that episode with Lee, I thought I knew like a lot about travel hacking and he just blew my mind with some of the stuff that he was sharing. He definitely is an expert in that space. I do want to ask though, so I mean, was it immediately like right after that episode comes out that you just get millions of downloads or what's kind of the progression of the next couple of episodes? Like how do you actually start building momentum? I know you just mentioned now quality is everything. Having really good content is so important. So it's shareable. And so Tim Ferriss puts you in his five bullet Fridays, but that doesn't always happen. Even if you have good content, usually it takes a little bit of wearing a little bit of a marketing hat, making sure you're getting this in front of the right people or having the right people push this out to their audiences to actually get that initial traction. Yeah. And that that Tim whole thing didn't happen until episode 20 something. So in the early days, Part one thing was getting a couple episodes prepped and ready, releasing them kind of in quick cadence because as silly as it is, the iTunes charts are based on momentum. And if you have multiple episodes in a week or two weeks, there's more opportunities for downloads. Part of it was leaning on every favor you can have, right? It's asking everyone you know, hey, this is the time. Everyone says, hey, I'd love a favor. This is the favor. I'm launching this podcast. Can you share this thing? Can you rate it? Can you tell your friends about it? So as calling in all the favors you can, I built up a mailing list of random things throughout my life. When I went on a trip around the world, people were like, hey, if you want to hear about what we're doing. So I, I kind of took all the emails that I had from friends and family and everyone and said, hey, this is what's happening. Wanted to make sure everyone saw it. I tried to do all those. And then I tried to time it with something. So I think I kind of got a little lucky here. But I think anyone that is going to start a podcast on a topic is probably an expert in that topic, hopefully, or at least passionate enough to come off as one. So I would say try to find the biggest possible thing you can do related to your expertise and launch your podcast at the same time is a a tactic. So if, you know, to go back to our our previous example of if you're really passionate about cleaning up the ocean, like if you have a lot of experience there, find something related to that, whether it's speaking at an event, whether it's a media related thing, whether it's doing an interview on a podcast, whether it's, I don't know. And if you can time launching your podcast and announcing your podcast with some other thing that can amplify it, that would be great. For me, kind of creator named Nas Daily, who has a big following, especially overseas, had reached out and said, hey, I want to make a video about you. I saw this thing on CNBC where you have 10 million credit card points. Like, I have to understand the story behind that. And I was like, cool, we can make a video just let me at some point in it share that I have a podcast and where they can find it. He was like, cool. So he made this video and the whole time I was waiting, I was like, I don't know if this video is going to come out in a week in a month in two months, but I, I had my trailer ready from when Kevin Rose, who was the friend of mine who asked me about the show. So I had a trailer out there, but I hadn't released anything. And I was like waiting, right? The trailer I think went out in March and we're now in April. I'm like, video's still not ready. Now we're in, man, like I've recorded a couple episodes, but like I was waiting 
And then finally they were like, all right, we're going to release it in four days. And I was like, oh, thanks for the notice. <laughs> so I was already, I was actually in Mexico at the time. And my, I was like, I got to get this all ready. We got to make sure it all launches at the right time. And iTunes, as they always do, was having all kinds of weird bugs with refreshing feeds and whatnot. Everything got ready. It was all out there. That thing launched. I sent the email to everyone I knew. I asked for all the favors. And that kind of amplified it enough that people saw it. And then, you know, I started talking about it everywhere I could. But I genuinely think, if, and you get the numbers will show you. I can go back and see. That had a really big impact for the first week. But no one sticks around if it's not good. So, like, you could do everything in the world to get a um, 100,000 people to listen to episode one. But if it sucks, <laughs> it doesn't matter. And so my advice is do everything you can to get the most people to listen to episode one or two. That's awesome. But do way, way more to try to make sure it's good. So for me, the first episode I released was like the sixth episode I recorded. And I got a chance to practice on the first five. And those ended up being episodes two, three, four, five, six, I guess. But episode six with Lee, I walked out of the room and I was like, that is it. Unfortunately, I walked out of the room. I remember I texted my wife and I was like, that was it. This is episode one. It was so good. And I got home and I plugged the SD card in because I recorded it in person and the SD card was corrupted. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. This is episode one. And I found this guy in San Francisco who's like a hard drive, like repair expert. And I remember like I literally put an SD card. Like think of the, the smallest thing you could put. And I called an Uber and I put an SD card in an envelope. And I was like, please take this to this like address in San Francisco because I was like 20 minutes away and I was like freaking out. So this guy's driving. No dice. Couldn't save the file at all. Could see that there was an MP3 on the SD card, but there was no file. So I guess technically that was my seventh recording because I went back to Lee's house a week later and we re-recorded the episode. I think it even turned out better. And I was like, that's the magic episode that has to be number one. So I'd say make sure that what you're putting out in the world is the best thing you can and then do everything you can to amplify it. But in that order. And just quickly touching back on the kind of big name guest thing one more time, like if somebody, whether it's a podcast or just some other thing where they're trying to collaborate with somebody who does have a, a larger audience, probably someone who's very busy. Do you have any recommendations for like kind of how to make that work and to be fruitful for both of you? Uh, obviously, a lot of times, you know, we say they're just regular people. They're just normal people. Don't be intimidated. But there probably are some different concessions or just maybe tips and tricks to working with someone who is at that level that maybe some of the listeners could benefit from. Yeah, I mean, showing people that you care about what they're doing is really valuable, right? If someone's out there, if I think, if someone's out there that wants to connect with me and they go out and they're like promoting all the hacks and they're, you know, sharing it and they're collecting feedback, whatever they're doing to make the show more valuable to other people, to promote it, to help me grow it, which is a big priority of mine, I would absolutely be more likely to write back to that person. Now, I try to write back to everyone right now, but as the show grows, I don't get that opportunity. But I can promise you if someone follows up, because you listen to the show, I'm always like, if you have guest ideas or topic ideas, if someone sent me an email and was like, hey, I thought about everything you said. I made a list of 10 guests and 10 topics that I think would make really good shows. That person's definitely getting an email back, right? Like showing that you can add value. So if you're trying to connect with someone out there, maybe they you know, are really involved with a nonprofit and you can go and help spread that word, run a, run a charity fundraiser for it. You could do all kinds of stuff to try to add value to that other person's life, whether it's promoting a project they're working on. That's one. A random hack that I think is fun is a lot of people just like live and die by their calendars. 
Like you could just throw a calendar invite to someone. Like if you have their email, you can invite them to a meeting. <laughs> and so I have not done this regularly, but I have tried it in the past and it's worked. You just send a calendar invite and see what happens. You could say, hey, would love to connect. Don't know you, but thought it'd be good. Put 15 minutes. Here's my cell. See what happens. I don't know. That's another idea. But I would say try to try to find them. I mean, obviously try to find a warm connection, right? If you go on LinkedIn and it's like, okay, you got a friends in common. I always look on LinkedIn. Then I look on Facebook and I'm like, is there someone in common? Who can I make that connection with? And if there's not, I just use one of the many different tactics out there to get email addresses, whether it's these extensions like Lucia or just searching around. I'll just cold email them and see what happens. Awesome. Well, listeners out there, Chris's personal email for his Google Calendar is not publicly available. But Chris, where do you want people to find more about you, get connected? Obviously, we just talked about all the hacks and find that wherever podcasts are available. But is there any other resources, places you want people to check you out? Yeah, yeah. So at allthehacks.com, obviously, there's show notes for every episode. So if you're listening to an episode and you like want to know all those key takeaways, head on over there. We also have a newsletter that I write every other week that dives really deep, like long form content. Like if you're, if you love TikTok style content, you will not like this <laughs> newsletter, but if you want to go deep on something, definitely check that out. I'm at Hutchins on Twitter and at Chris Hutchins everywhere else online. And my email is Chris at all the hacks.com. If you have questions, Google calendar invites, here you come. Yeah, yeah. Send a calendar <laughs> invite. We'll see what happens. But that email is not actually connected to my calendar, but I do check it every day. <laughs> Well, Chris, second that, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for giving us some time. It's awesome to see what you've built, and it'll be fun to watch where it goes from here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.